We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. First Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to study today verses 12 through 20. I was reading a story uh, earlier about a, a Muslim man. Uh, he was Muslim. His name was Ali. And, uh, you know, but he wasn't really a, a devout Muslim. And he lived his life in a scandalous way. Um, drinking, verbally abusing his wife, uh, physically abusing his wife. Um, really didn't have much going for him. Uh, but he kind of wanted to change his ways, and so what ended up happening was uh, he said, I'm going to be a real Muslim. And so he said, I'm going to take a journey to Mecca. And uh, as he went to Mecca, though, he met a man who was a Christian. And this man began to witness to him. And then, lo and behold, Ali began to have dreams and began to have visions. Jesus Christ uh, was calling him. Jesus Christ was appearing to him. You know, one of the things that we see going on, even in the Muslim world today, and you can talk to Robert, he's our missions overseer, but you just kind of do a little research and you find that Jesus is appearing to people and he's calling them. And this guy right here, Ali, you know, Jesus was appearing to him in dreams and he, he said, no, I'm, I'm a Muslim. I'm, I'm going to, you know, go to, to Mecca. And the Lord said, leave. The Lord said, leave. And, uh, and say, so no. And he tried starting his car. It, it wouldn't start. He, he said, I want to go to Mecca. What ends up happening is when he finally made the decision to leave, his car started. <laughs> and, he, and he went back home. He got plugged in. He learned about Jesus. And God totally transformed his life. And now he is a strong advocate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something, man. Things like that are happening all the time, you know. Maybe you don't have as dramatic of a story, but many of us here, we have crazy backgrounds. And, you know, you should be dead. You should be in prison. You should not have a family. You should not have a ministry. But Jesus Christ came into your life. And he rescued you and he saved you. And now it's just crazy. He's using you for the glory of God. And that's just an amazing story. And it's an amazing God that we serve. And that's what we're going to see today. Paul the Apostle is going to share a little bit about his story. And I think that as we go through it, we're going to glean from this. We're going to learn from this. And my prayer is that God will really stir us up, you know, to, to just not just, okay, we went to church and hey, that was cool, man. Let's go to In-N-Out now, you know, because I want the animal style double-double or whatever it is that you're looking forward to, you know. Man, that God would transform our lives today, that we would never be the same. Some of you here, you probably don't even know the Lord. You're not a Christian. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ brought you here today because he loves you. He is in love with you. He died for you. And what he's going to call you to do today is just accept that love, receive that love, and turn from your sins and trust in him. Receive the gift of life and you watch how everything will change. It's so cool. Because look what we read here in verse 12. He says, 
Paul says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. We see, first of all, in verses 12 through 16, gratitude. Gratitude for grace. Doesn't it kind of like, uh, don't you guys get mad when, you know, sometimes people, they're not grateful? Like, you know, I always try to tell my kids, hey, thank your mom, you know, for, for you know, working so hard and, in the meal that she made, you know, and it's kind of a bummer when you, you know, you give people, you know, whatever it is, and they're, they're just, you know what, it doesn't matter. They feel like they're entitled to it. They're, they're not grateful. They don't even say thank you. Some people are like that with God. Paul's not like that. He says there in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus. I thank our Lord who has enabled me because he can be faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul was definitely a grateful man. This is probably the best explanation as to why he served the Lord with such passion and productivity. There is productivity in his life. Why? Because the day he was saved, he understood the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he served the Lord till the day he died with that same gratitude. He had that attitude of gratitude that God would save a man like him for eternity, use him in the ministry, even though he had lived life so wickedly. And he never forgot that. It's been said that the depth of a disciple is simply measured by the depth of his gratitude. How thankful are you to Jesus? Paul was so grateful. Paul right here was blessed for his call to ministry, in spite of a life lived so wickedly. Look at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. The ministry. You know, and we're all called to the ministry in certain ways, but then there is that that special call, that special call into the ministry where Paul the Apostle found himself as an apostle with like a capital A. You guys know that Judas hung himself, right? You guys know that story. Paul replaced Judas. Paul had a special call into the ministry. And, you know, I'm blessed. I get to be a part of the ministry. I'm not an apostle with a capital A, but there's something about it. There's something about being called into the ministry you know, every time I go through those doors and, you know, when you guys aren't here, I come in on whatever, a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday and it's empty, I beat my breast and I thank God, I can't believe the grace you've given to me that you've called me into the ministry. There ain't nothing to me like the ministry. And Paul was just so grateful for that calling in his life. He recognized that it was Jesus who had enabled him to be a minister. That's what he says right there. The Greek word translated enabled 
speaks of being strengthened with the strength that only God can give. Paul knew that without the supernatural strength that only God provides, he wouldn't be able to carry on a conversation, he wouldn't even be able to carry on. His words as a teacher would have no weight. His teaching would not touch or transform a single life. Not a single soul could be saved without the power of God within him, the ministry. He needed that enablement, right? Without the Lord, he'd be eaten alive by the devil and chewed out and be dead. Were it not for the supernatural power of God in the ministry. I'm not talking about a machine. I'm not talking about a religion. I'm not talking about when you go through the motions. I'm talking about when God is really in it. When it's a real ministry, it cannot be done without the power of God. And and Paul knew that, you know, as he lived his life, he knew he, who he was, and then he just saw the amazing things, amazing things God did. He knew, you know, it's not my ability. It, it was his availability. It was God's ability. God had enabled him. God had given him the strength. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally then, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. See, that's the ministry. You know, you're involved in the ministry and it's a war. And, you know, this happens and there's an issue here and there's drama there and there's scandal there and the devil comes in and he tries to just chew you up and discourage you and bring doubt to your life and ruin the church and just, it's a war. And that's why we have to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not our own. That's why the Bible says in Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It should be a reminder for us, and it should also be an encouragement for us who aspire to minister. It's not our ability, it's our availability. It's even our humility. Are you here today and you, would you admit, would you say in all honesty, God, I'm not worthy. God, I'm not able. But Lord, I make myself available to you. And if you make yourself available, then God will make you able. Like Isaiah chapter 6, you know, when there was Isaiah, and he really saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a sinful man, I have sinful lips, I dwell among people of sinful lips. God, you know, my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And then the Lord just comes and cleanses him. And then next thing you know, he says, Lord, I'm not much. I really, I'm not. But I'm available. I give you my life. You call the shots. You write my schedule. You make me a minister. And the Lord said, you're the man. And he sent him out. God did an amazing work with Isaiah. Paul here says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. Notice what he says in verse 12, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. You know, we don't have a lot to offer. We don't really bring a whole lot to the table. But I will tell you this, you guys. You've got to have a heart that's faithful, right? The Bible says in Proverbs 25, 19, confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble, is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. 
You know, have you ever had like a really bad toothache? Like it's just, oh, you know, you're dying or, you know, I don't know what it would be like to have a foot at a joint. I know the other day I was exercising and I'm getting old, you know, and I had a crazy cramp. I'm like, Lord, I'm dying. What's going on here, you know? And it was just a, it was just a pain, man. It was a pain. It was a drag. It was, it was just, you know, it was not good. And that's why you got to be faithful. We can't be flaky. You say you're going to be there, then you got to be there. You got to be faithful to the Lord, right? I think that the Lord right here, in looking at the life of Paul, he watched him for nine years, really. When Paul was first saved, he spent two to three years in Arabia. We see that in Galatians 1.17. And so when he first got saved, imagine this, you guys. He just goes down to Arabia in the desert, there's not a lot there. He has the Holy Spirit. He has the Bible. He has a cup of coffee. That's all he needs, right? And he's just studying the Bible, just studying the Bible for three years. Then he goes to Jerusalem. He spends a few weeks there. And he goes up to Syria. And he's there. Uh, we don't know exactly what he was doing in Syria, his stomping grounds. But we know that he was preaching because the Bible says in Galatians 1.23, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And so, you know, he doesn't have a position, so to speak, but he's faithful. He was preaching. God saw the faithfulness, and then we read in Acts chapter 11 how Barnabas went and grabbed him, he found him, and he brought him into the ministry, and so God ordained him as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God counted him faithful. So God put him into the ministry. And undoubtedly, God looked down the corridors of time and he saw, you know what, he will be faithful. God made him faithful. It's a combination of things. The Greek word, it speaks of people who show themselves faithful in the transaction of business, the execution of commands, or the discharge of official duties. One worthy of trust, someone who can be relied upon. Are you that type of person? I can rely on them. They'll be there. They'll be there on time. They're faithful. They always show up unless they die, right? Something like that, right? God says, I want you to be a faithful minister. You don't give up. To be faithful and reliable in the sphere of service is of the utmost importance. The Bible says, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. One day when you stand before God, he's not going to say, well, how big was your church? How big was your ministry? You want to know he's going to search your heart over? How faithful were you? Faithful. Big, big issue. Right here he says that he can be faithful, putting me into the ministry. That word ministry, it speaks of a place where we serve as slaves. That's who we are. We're bondservants. We're slaves. The Greek word is diakono, right? And it's one who does the errands of another. He obeys the commands of the commander. No, we aren't reverends. Don't call us reverends, because we're not. We are not to bear the title of father. I mean, sometimes people, when they come from a Catholic background, they say, Father Manny. I say, oh, no, no, don't say that. Don't say that, you know. <laughs> no, I'm a minister. I'm okay with that, because I know what that means. Slave. Slave. Oh, okay. That's who I am. That's who we are. You know? That's what the ministry is. 
Sometimes we go through the chain of command, but God is the ultimate commander. And Paul was so grateful that God had enabled him and counted him faithful, putting him into the ministry. It was a life of ministry in spite of a life lived wickedly. Because look at verse 13. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. Paul here is so grateful for the grace. We read in verse 13 that he was formerly a blasphemer. And that means he used to scoff at the name of Christ. Jesus, scoff at his name. He was a a persecutor. We read that in verse 13. And that's literally one who chases someone down. They hunt them down. They take them down. That's who he was doing. That's what he was doing to the people of God. You know, it's kind of funny. And I don't know, I'm, I'm weird. I'm weird. But the other day I was working out on the treadmill and I, my son started working out with me and I said, hey Aaron, you know, you better, you better learn how to run. You know, it's good to run because you never know. One day you might get chased, man. <laughs> and imagine if you were getting chased by, you know, some mean bad guy and you didn't have any stamina, you know. So sometimes when I'm running, I'm like, okay, Lord, you never know, right? I mean, Paul was persecuting them. He was literally chasing them, hunting them down, taking them down. It's interesting, when Jesus called Paul, formerly known as Saul, that's the first thing he said. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's who he was. The Greek word right here, it means to put to flight and drive away to chase. You know, when you read the writings of Paul, you find that he never forgot where he came from, how bad he was before. He wrote of it frequently. And you know, there's a scripture in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, about a woman who was a prostitute. And she probably was dressed, you know, pretty bad. She comes to Jesus, who's hanging out with a bunch of religious people. And then she just comes to him and she starts to touch him. And she starts to wash his feet with her tears and, and with her hair. And so all the religious people, they were, they were pretty upset. You know, said, you know, if this guy was a, was a right-on man, he would know what kind of woman this is. He would not hang with her. He would not let her come near him. But then Jesus went on and he told the story. And basically what he said, he says, you know, this woman right here who, you know, you think of that, she was a prostitute. She's humbled herself. She's come. She wants a new life. She's asked for forgiveness. And I'm going to forgive her. And you know what's going to happen? As I forgive all of her terrible sins, she's going to love me. She's going to love me more than you self-righteous religious guys. You know, you guys think you're, you're, you know, you're God's gift to mankind. You're not. You don't love me because you're not in tune with, with what you've done in the past, with who you really are at the core of your wicked heart. See? And, and you know, when you, one of the things that's so difficult, you guys, is our past. You know, our past, it's, there's a lot of crazy things back there. And, you know, as a Christian, you know, you don't want to focus on your past in the sense that it would condemn you. You don't. You don't, man, because God's given you a new life. Your past is kind of like a rearview mirror. You see it, you learn from it, but primarily you have a windshield where you look forward. But don't forget 
the wickedness of who you were. Don't let it condemn you, but don't don't forget it. Because Paul, in writing his letters, he would always bring it up. I did this, and he was you know pretty specific. And and I think that that gratitude of being in tune with who he was, it, it just drove him, you know, to love God the way that that he did. He served God. You know, when I get to heaven, I want to see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I want to see God first. Then, you know, my loved ones who have passed on. I think of my mother-in-law, my children. I want to see them. But I want to see Paul, too. I said, dude, you know what? I'll buy you a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I thank God for the work that he did in your life because he's an amazing man. I want to be like, by, like Paul. Well, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want to turn the world upside down. I, somehow, some way, even though I'm not good enough or worthy, or there's nothing about me, not a shred of who I am, could do it. But I want to. This is how. Remember who you were? Look at what God has done for you. And you never forget. You don't let it condemn you and you're not proud of it. Some guys I think are proud of their past. Oh yeah, you know. And you're not proud of it, but you just never forget what God has done in your life. Paul was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. And he was an insolent man. Other translations say a violent aggressor or violent man. You know, how violent was he? We know that when Stephen was martyred, that, you know, Paul was there guarding the coats of the official witnesses and he voted against Stephen and he watched him die in absolute approval. We read that in Acts 7, verse 58. How violent was he? Well, we read in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, I persecuted the way to death. I killed people. You know, I just, I don't even want to go there. Like, I, I remember, I mean, I have visuals, Lords of the Lord of the Rings about People being strangled to death. People being killed. And I think that was Paul. He killed people. He was a violent man. He was a persecutor. He was a blasphemer. The Bible even says in the book of Acts chapter 8 verse 3 that as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. That word havoc, it literally means he ravaged the church, which literally means He raped the church. He raped the church. The Greek word is used in classical literature. It's used in the Septuagint of a wild boar that goes in and just overturns an entire vineyard. That's who this was. Somebody comes in here and guns us down. He was the Adolf Hitler. He was a Mussolini. He was as crazy as they can be. But what ends up happening? (laughs) Even though he lived life so wickedly, God called him into the ministry. He says in verse 13, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Therefore, 
God gave him mercy. I'm sure many of us here can think of our BC days, the terrible, terrible things we did, right? We weren't believers and we didn't know the right from wrong a lot of times. If, I know some of you guys here, it's kind of funny, man. Like some of you guys here, I look at you and I just think, yeah, they were probably a bad person before they were a Christian, you know. <laughs> you can just tell, man, they're all tatted down or whatever, you know. And other people, I could look at you and I just think, oh, they are so like squeaky clean, right? But man, little do you know. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, man, there are some amazing testimonies here in this church, they really are, you know? And that's where Paul, he's just saying that's who he is. I, I, I was like this, and look at what God has done. You know, we go back to our B.C. days. We didn't know the difference, right? But hasn't God showed us mercy? God showed Paul mercy. And, you know, when he showed him this, because what I usually do, and just the, the natural tendency is like, okay, you know what? You say you're going to get right. I'll give you a little bit, you know? I'll give you a little bit, okay? Um, I don't know. You can... Have your phone back, but you don't get any apps or something like that. You know, I don't know. Some, you know, you give him a little bit, right? God just, man, he just flooded him with grace. He just, he just gave him everything. It says that in verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. Kenneth Weiss says, superabounded. Illustrations will give you like this river that just overflows its banks and sweeps everything away. Or as C.H. Spurgeon said, looking out at the ocean, can you drink the ocean of his grace? I mean, God doesn't just say, okay, you know, I'll give you a little bit. Man, he just floods you. He floods us with grace. And so Paul is so grateful for that. Even though he previously lived and he was so in tune, so wickedly, he was saved and called into the the ministry. And he was just so blown away by that. And so he says there in verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Even though he lived previously so wickedly, he was saved, called into the ministry, which leads Paul to this uh, faithful saying. Now, when you study the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, five times you come across, this is a faithful saying. Now, we believe it's a doctrinal declaration. We believe that there's a true and trustworthy statement that's said in this case we see that's going to be universally accepted and here it is here's the first one of the five christ jesus came into the world to save sinners that's the mission statement some of you guys here you have jobs that you know you talk to the ceo and he says okay this is our mission statement or you go into a church oh this is our mission statement Jesus' mission statement is declared here, and that is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That, that was his mission statement. And I pray that we would remember that. Remember this. Jesus said this, as the Father has sent me into the world, 
so I send you into the world. We have the same mission statement. We want to bring glory to God. We want to build up the church. We want to reach the lost. We want sinners to be saved. You know, some of you here, you live in your Christian cubbyhole. And, you know, you're like, well, as long as my family's saved. And that's cool. You know, you got to have the priorities in order. Love God. Love your family. Be faithful in ministry. Don't, don't get me wrong. But there's, there's more to the mission. Because that was Jesus' mission statement. I don't want you guys to misunderstand me, but I want you to know what we need to do as a church. You know, we have to save the lost, be used by him to do that. You know, I know sometimes we're like, oh, the world, you know, oh, the unsaved, and, and they repel you. And it does, it turns your stomach because we have that conviction now. I pray that we are not, you know, desensitized by those things. But those things that repel us should also compel us. The reason they live wickedly and horrendously is because they don't know Jesus. Just like you didn't know Jesus at one time. But somewhere along the line, someone reached out to you. You had a friend at work. He was a right-on Christian. He loved the Lord. And you know what happened? He became my friend. He became my friend. I started hanging out with him and, and trusting him. And then when the day finally came, when he just, he, one day he just asked me, he said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah. He said, what church do you go to? Because uh, I wasn't a Christian, but I thought I was. Oh, I go to St. Christopher's. Oh, cool. I said, what church do you go to? He said, Calvary Chapel. And he just said, yeah, you should come one day. And my friend, he was a Christian, I wasn't. But he was my friend. He led me to the Lord. Because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's important for us to understand that. You know, we read in the Bible about the Lord and how he had that heart. What does the Bible say about Jesus? In Luke chapter 7, verse 34, that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors. Any of you guys had to owe taxes? Don't you hate them? Not his joke. Tax collectors. They were the worst. They were the traitors. They were working for the Roman government. They were ripping us off. They were unfair, unjust. I want to kill them, right? Tax collectors. He was a friend to tax collectors, the Bible says, and sinners. Not that they were his confidants. Don't get me wrong. Not that they were his counselors. We've got to make sure we make that clear. But he did eat and drink with them. Right? And in those days that meant a lot. When you ate and drank with somebody, even today when you eat with somebody, it's special, right? You go over to the house for dinner or whatever. You know, afterwards, I know a lot of you are going to go to In-N-Out, Alberto's right there, right? You guys ever tried those big, uh, what are they called? The guacamole, cheese, nachos, meat, all that kind of stuff. It'll kill you, man, all right? <laughs> I don't know, but... In those days, they, you know, the Egyptians wouldn't eat with the Jews, and Jews wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. And why? Because you double dipped with them. I ain't gonna double dip with dip, dip with just anybody, man. It meant you were one. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. They criticized him for that. 
But what does the Bible say? In Mark chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating and with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with the tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a faithful saying. It's a doctrinal declaration. It's a mission statement that is to be universally accepted and embraced as a church. Jesus came to save sinners. God help us not to forget that. It's important. You know, in looking at the life of Paul, he said this is a general statement, but of course we know that he made it a personal statement. In verse 15, it's a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I know this one brother, he's really cool. He's really cool. And his grandchildren, they all call him chief. Chief. And I thought that was cool, man. Hey, I'm chief. All right. <laughs> but here Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Seems like the longer Paul walked with the Lord and the closer Paul got to the Lord, the more he was sensitive to the way that we can so easily grieve the Lord. It's important to notice that he doesn't say, I was the chief. He says right there, I am chief. He still knew that about himself. You know, a lot of people, they track the journey of Paul as he grew in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, it was a letter that he wrote 21 years after he came to Christ. He said, I'm not worthy to be an apostle. I'm not worthy to be an apostle. And then four years later, after 25 years of being a Christian, he wrote in Ephesians 3.8, I am less than the least of all the saints. And so, you know, you kind of visualize like how that works Okay, and I could tell you guys, and I, and I really believe it, I am not worthy to be a pastor. But then I'll take it a step further, and I still believe this is true. I am the least of all the saints. Sometimes people think, well, he's a pastor, he's probably the best guy in the church. No way, that's not my mentality, and it shouldn't be yours either. I really consider myself to be the least of all the saints. But then he even took it a step further here and he says, and, and by the way, this is after being a Christian for 30 years. He writes here in 1 Timothy 1.15, in this place of honesty, in this place of humility, in this place of really seeing who he is in all you know, reality, I really am the chief of all sinners. That's heavy. You know, Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. John Stott said, It's the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. You know, some people, this is how they, they see themselves. They go to pray and they say, Lord, thank you so much. I am not like that sinner over there. I fast, I tithe, I read my Bible, I pray, thank you, Lord, I'm not like 
them. That's in their heart. What ends up happening? Jesus says, no, this is the way you got to be when you pray. Can't even lift your eyes. Be merciful to me. A sinner. I know who I am, Lord. It seems like the closer I get to you, like, you know, Daniel or... You know, John the Beloved, when they were in the presence of holiness, they just, man, blastado, man, they're plastered to the floor. Paul's not just, you know, messing around. And I think it's cool when people have that type of, I guess you could say, self-image. Humility. I know who I am apart from Christ. It's not good. But as a Christian, I know who I am as a part of Christ, as a part of the body of Christ. And then you just have that, that heart. If you think you got it all together, if you think you're the, you know, the best thing given to the church since sliced bread or whatever, God's not going to use your life. But if you're just, you know, I mean, I sometimes Shelly and I, we'll have these conversations and we look at each other and we're just like, man, can you believe the Lord has allowed us such a, a gracious gift and that we get to serve him? We never, ever think, yeah, you know, sweetheart, we make sense, huh? Yeah, we're, we're kind of like, Everybody could see it. No. It's never like that. God has his ways of keeping us humble. At least he tries to. Don't get me wrong, I don't think it's Paul had come to a place where he was living persistently and insistently in sin. No, he wasn't. And we shouldn't be living like that either. But I really do believe in that truth that you get close to God and then you realize how far away you really are. And so you go back 30 years and you find this guy saw this wicked, wretched man who even at his best is the chief of all sinners. And so you ask God then, man, why would you choose a man like this? And the answer is in verse 16. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. See, this is why. You know, God rolled up his sleeve and he reached into the slimiest pit and he pulled out the most pathetic person and he says, let me show you what I can do with him. Why? Why, Lord? Because I want all these other people at Calvary Chapel Almani to be encouraged. I want them to know what I can do with them. That you might be here today, maybe you're past, I don't know, maybe you're present, you're living wickedly. God says, cool, look what I've done with Paul. I'll tell you what, I'll call you into the ministry. And I'll use your life in an amazing way. Because if I did it with Paul, I can do it with you. It's not your ability, it's your availability. It's your humility. I'll strengthen you. Just be faithful. 
And it's so cool when God does that work. You know, here we see that Paul was a pattern that the old King James it uses in sample. So he was like a sample. Paul was a pattern. This sinner was a sample. And God says, if I can do that with him, then I can do that with you. I just want you to have an understanding of the way it works, the gospel. Let me ask you a question today. What side of sin are you on? Now, I don't want you to read this and say, well, God is so long-suffering. So I tell you what, I'm going to go out, man, and we're going to have a good time. We're going to party. We're going to get drunk, have sex, do drugs, tell lies, spread slander, cause division, rebel, not submit, not love, not forgive. And, and, you know, you're on that side of sin right now. You're like, hey, if that's the type of God he is, I'm going to go do it. You know what? That's not what this is about. Don't take this teaching and say God's long suffering is so cool, so sin ain't no thing. Oh, yes, it is. That's not the intention of this revelation. But what if you're on the other side of sin? What if you're here today and maybe you've messed up? You know what? Then here you are, you've sinned, you've blown it, you stumbled, you fell, you might even be here today on your way to hell. And the devil comes in and he says, I don't even know why you're there. What are you doing there? You of all people. God can't use your life. The next time the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Right? Get behind me, Satan. It's for you, for those of us who have blown it. And you know that no matter how bad my sin is, there is power in the blood of Jesus. That all those things that I've done, past, present, even future, they were nailed to the cross. That there is forgiveness, that there is freedom. It doesn't matter how wickedly you've lived, there's a ministry for you. And I'm not talking about the person next to you. I'm talking to you. And when the church understands that, then they'll understand, you know, the trophy that Paul is. Paul's like a trophy, you know? He's a trophy. You look at the shelf, oh, Paul the Apostle, he's a demonstration of the way that God can do such an amazing work. But you really have to allow this truth to do its work in your heart. The truth is for you that God can forgive you, and here you are, you've been doing wickedly. Who knows, God might call you into full-time ministry, and we can say that because we see the pattern of Paul, the sample of such a terrible sinner who was saved and even sent by the Lord himself. Here's all you have to do. Look at verse 16. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to what? Believe on him for everlasting life. You know, we were sharing with a lady earlier. She accepted the Lord. It was so cool. She came from a religious background, but she didn't know Jesus. We're just sharing with her, you know, it's so simple, it's so beautiful. The gospel is a gift. It's a gift. Heaven is a gift. Righteousness is a gift. And all you got to do is receive that gift.
believe and receive. Today, if you make a decision to turn from your sins and trust in Christ, then it's so cool. You have that gift. This is really what it's all about. Paul here, he just gives us this amazing gratitude for grace and teaches us so many things, which then leads him to the glory to God in verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't think this was part of Paul's outline when he sat down to write the letter, but as he's writing and he's just thinking again, God, I remember, you know what I did and how I hurt that person? You know, I said that to them and how I hurt and just all these crazy things. And then you saved me. You sent me. And he just was like, wow, you've given me life. And then he just starts praising the Lord. It was a doxology that was not really, you know, I don't think it was planned. It just kind of spontaneously came out, you know. That gratitude for grace, it led to the glory of God. And I, and I pray, you guys, we would give him glory. And one of the things that will take away from giving him glory and I just pray you would know the purity of this statement is when you give glory to men. That strips God of his glory. Just give glory to God. It says right here, he's immortal, he's eternal, he's invisible, who alone is wise. He's the wise one, right? To him be glory and honor. I pray you would glorify God. Paul here says, man, gratitude for grace, glory to God. And then he closes with this guarding of the gospel. In verse 18, this charge I commit to you, son, Timothy, according to prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, with some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Again, we come back to this charge in verse 18. It's the same word translated command in verse 5, which points to verse 3 of chapter 1. Remember how it started off? Remain in Ephesus that they may, you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. A large part of the pastoral responsibilities is to make sure that people don't teach different doctrines. When you look at the life of Paul the Apostle, more than likely he wrote this book, 1 Timothy, in AD 67, and he's going to die the next year, in AD 68. So he's got one year left of life. He had been entrusted with the glorious gospel, and now he's entrusting it to Timothy. He was committing this responsibility to him. Apparently there had been a prophecy, we read there in verse 18, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. You know, there's a prophecy over Timothy's life. God had made it clear that he would be the one to whom Paul would pass the baton. 
And this word was given with the intention to encourage him to do what? To wage the good warfare. You know, it's cool. And I want to pray that you guys don't despise the spiritual gifts. You know, people can prophesy over your life. You have to test them, but don't despise them and don't quench the spirit. You know, I had people, I remember over my life, they would give me spiritual words and there was a word of knowledge, which was followed with a word of wisdom. And then there was even prophecies. Of course, you test everything. But I remember one time someone came up to me and they said a secret. It was a secret that I had been praying And it was just the terminology, the exact words. She came up to me and she gave me a word of of knowledge, something that only God could have given her. That was then followed with a word of wisdom. And then she prophesied over my life. Now she didn't say, well, you're going to be a pastor in Calvary Chapel Almighty. She didn't say anything like that. But there were things there that, you know, I just tuck away in my heart. And God can do that. I do pray that we would be open to the Holy Spirit. God can speak words of wisdom, words of knowledge, words of prophecy. You read 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Peter chapter 4. You have all the gifts of the Spirit, right? Don't despise those things. Begin to take steps of faith and communicate God's word. Now, again, guard that because some people can be weird. They go up to you, let's just say you're a single girl here today, and some guy comes up to you and says, God showed me, you're going to marry me. Right? <laughs> if they say that, you can kick them in the shins. And I want to know that we have pastoral permission to kick them. <laughs> <You know? clears throat> no, I'm not talking about stuff like that. You test them, though. But we here there is a prophecy over Timothy. Hey, God's going to use your life. I want to encourage you with this to do what? To wage war. To wage war. See, Christian, you know, church is fun and you have to have a serious sense of humor, man. I pray that you do, but it's, it's not just a playground, it's a battleground. And it's a battle with those demons and those lies and those crazy things and people that are trying to hurt God's church. Tell you what, man, I'm ready for the war, Lord. I'm going to fight the good fight. Like Paul said, I'm going to finish the race and I'm going to keep the faith. Now, we don't war over the non-essentials, but we do war over the essentials. We do war over the gospel, right? And so Timothy here was like, man, you know, Paul writing to him, faith and, you know, you're doing good right there and good conscience, but not everybody was like that. There was a couple of individuals Hymenaeus and Alexander, apparently they weren't sticking to the faith. When you read over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, And their message will spread like cancer. Can you visualize that? It's cancer. It spreads sometimes in the church. These guys, Hymenaeus, we were saying that the resurrection had already passed and they overthrew the faith of some. And so what did Paul do? Imagine that. He delivered them to Satan. Can you imagine that? You know, pick them up by the shirt coat. You know, (laughs) here, I'm giving you to the devil. And you're like, huh, how could Paul do that? He does that so they learn. Kick you out of the church. He excommunicates you. You know, one of the things that, you know, nowadays, well, they just go to the church down the street, but it's never the same. 
See, there is a covering here. There is a protection here in the church. But Timothy, Paul's writing to him. He says, you got you to gotta fight, man. And if, if necessary, the day comes, people are living in insistent, consistent, persistent sin, causing division, whatever it is. Deal with it. And, uh, and that's what we read over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4-5. through 5. That's exactly what he did. He delivered them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that in the end they might be saved. And so, this, I love 1 Timothy. I love just learning about you know, what we are as a church, who we are, my responsibilities, our responsibilities. I love this letter. And I tell you what, I love the way that God has chosen Paul you know, to make this radical difference. And he's a pattern. My prayer is that, man, all of you would be like Paul. I really pray the best over your lives. I pray that whatever the ministry is that God's called you to do, that you would do it effectively and productively and passionately and be so careful that you don't get entangled with the affairs of this life because God is just wanting to do a radical work. Have you guys ever heard of that guy C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis. He was a... He's a prolific Christian author. No, but you would never know that the background to this guy is, is real interesting. When he was nine years old, his mom died. And then what ended up happening was then his father shipped him over to the boarding school. And at the age of 12, he became a full-blooded atheist. He was actually an antagonist to the faith. He thought that of all the, even the myths out there, he thought that Christianity was the worst. And so he lived his life, he grew up, he was educated in Oxford, then he went over and served in World War I, he was injured, he came back, he finished his education, and uh, he began to write, he wasn't really successful, a couple of poems, and that's about it, but what ended up happening was he, he met a couple of friends, one of them was uh, J.R. Tolkien, and the other one was an individual named Hugo Dyson. These were two guys that were believers. Hugo Dyson was a really committed Christian, and they were his friends. Even though here was a, just a full-blooded atheist, they were his friends, and they would meet every week. They'd talk about literature. And then one day, they talked all night long. All night. And God just, he planted this seed in C.S. Lewis. So then what happened was he went to the zoo, and this is kind of a funny story, with his brother. He was on his way to the zoo. And um, he said, well, when I got in the car, I wasn't a believer. My brother was a believer. He said a couple of things. And when I got to the zoo, I was a believer. (laughs) And just boom, God just radically transformed this man who was Full-blooded atheist, antagonistic to the faith. Used a couple of his friends, real friends. He got saved. And then what happened? Boom. Homeboy wrote 40 books, man. 40 books. His book, Mere Christianity, was considered the book of the century. All the authors and teachers and pastors, when they voted, that's how much of an influence he had. This guy became so right on for the Lord, he gave two-thirds of his 
income to the church. And he was known, literally known, for visiting the sick and taking care of the poor. Great man of God. That was his ministry. It didn't matter what his background was. See, and it doesn't matter what what your background is, what your past is. I'm telling you this. God can use your life. God can bless your life. He wants to. Who knows? Maybe you won't write 40 books. Maybe you'll write 41. (laughs) God can do anything. Father, we thank you so much for your love and grace in our life. We're grateful for that grace. We want to say thank you. We don't want to be spoiled kids. Thank you, Lord. We want to give you glory, God, to you alone. You alone are wise. And Lord, we want to guard the gospel. Help us, Lord God, to wage war over that. Maybe not the non-essentials, but the essentials. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know our mission statement, your mission statement, to save sinners. I just thank you so much, Lord, for the awesome God that you are. And I pray for your sons and daughters here today. Bless them, encourage them. I know they're they're also battling, I'm sure, a lot of things, the lies of the enemy and just a lot of things, strongholds. Father, I pray, though, for any here today who maybe aren't Christians, But today's the day, Lord, that you want to save them and change their life. I pray, Lord God, that today you would just communicate to them clearly the love that you have for them, the way that your son died, was put in a grave, rose again. And if they would just turn from their sins, trust in Jesus, then they'd be saved. Help us, Lord God, I pray. And if you're here today and you need prayer, um, you're hurting, you're going through something, or maybe you want to become a Christian, rededicate your Christian, a whole, whole bunch of things, just raise your hand. I just want you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Praise God. All those hands that have gone up, special time of prayer, commitment to lot Christ, recommitment, getting right with the Lord, because God sees those hands. Lord, I just thank you for the hands that went up, Lord. And I pray, God, because you know the the details of their situation, Lord. I pray you would meet them there, that you'd bless them, that you would save some, that you would sanctify, that you would give them wisdom, strength, stamina. You pour out your spirit, Lord. You baptize them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Give them a great hunger for your word, for prayer, for fellowship, for obedience, holiness, Lord, understanding grace. Lord, I pray you would just bless your people. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.